Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, I hope that you can all hear me and people on the internet can hear us as well. I want to do three things this afternoon. I want to describe some gaps that we have in uh, the field of development where data is particularly poor. I want to describe the initiatives that are being undertaken to close these gaps. Um, and I want to share the findings of the work that we have been doing to publish what you fund to assess the transparency of aid and the results uh, in the hope of promoting greater transparency. <coughs> Copies of our report are available outside the room, so please do take one as you leave. First, on some gaps, uh, and I wanted to refer back to my experience working with the government of Sierra Leone in um, 2014 during the Ebola crisis, uh, we had a number of data gaps that hit us simultaneously. Um, and I was working in the Ebola situation room, so I had to deal with these firsthand. First of all, we didn't know where the patients were. Um, there isn't a uh, nationwide system of primary care registration in Sierra Leone, so people would report to a health clinic, but you didn't know who they were um, or necessarily how sick they were. Um, we couldn't track ambulances. Ambulances would, would come off the boat and uh, be handed over to the Ministry of Health and would then disappear. Uh, someone usually knew where they were, but there wasn't a centralized registry. Um, and in many cases, Ebola relief workers were paid late or not at all, either because they weren't on the payroll or because the people who were on the payroll weren't actually working on Ebola. Um, and some people were also on the payroll multiple times. Uh, and this, of course, was uh, both insulting to the people who were working and putting themselves at risk, uh, but actually put the quality of the health service uh, under significant threat. But two other crises hit Sierra Leone at the same time as Ebola. Uh, the second was the collapse of the mining industry. Ebola made this worse, but it was going to happen anyway. Uh, iron ore was the major export, and the price of iron ore has fallen a lot in the past few years as China's economy slowed down. And most of the mining companies are privately quoted. Um, some of them on the alternative investment market in London, which has very low standards of disclosure. So you can't find out who the mining companies are who are operating in Sierra Leone. You can't see the contracts under which they operate. You can't see their tax returns or their company returns because in many cases they're privately held or registered in countries with low disclosure standards. Um, and so you also can't see how much they've paid government officials legally or illegally to operate in the country. And some of you might have seen a report by Global Witness that came out on this yesterday, um, looking at a very similar case in Liberia, which I'm also familiar with. The third problem that hit at the same time was that the tax collection fell for two reasons. One, the economy was slowing down anyway because of Ebola. Two, uh, the way you pay your taxes in Sierra Leone is that you physically go into the Ministry of Finance and hand over cash. And people were afraid to do that because of restrictions on movement, quarantine, and so on. As the Minister of Finance didn't know how much money was coming in, had to delay payments to civil servants and uh, to suppliers, which in turn slowed the economy further. And bad data doesn't cause these problems, it compounds them. Um, and whilst Sierra Leone in Ebola was maybe an extreme case, you do have problems like this occurring whenever there is a natural disaster, such as the earthquake in Nepal or in countries that are highly corrupt or, or poorly governed, of which there are many. It's not just uh, 
Emergencies, though, this is uh, bad or absent data is also a problem in um, more stable development situations. A few more examples. Nigeria, uh, GDP doubled almost overnight uh, a few years ago because of a change in how it was measured. Essentially, IT, telecoms, financial services, which didn't really exist in 1990 um, when the method of calculation was last updated, were included in GDP for the first time. Nigeria's GDP appeared to grow very substantially. And that matters because uh, once you're a middle-income country, you can no longer borrow from the World Bank at concessional rates, which is a big deal in a country um, whose export revenues have been falling as the oil price fell. Um, we don't know how many women die giving, giving birth. We know that the number is falling, um, but we don't know how fast by how much. And the reason for that is that only one in five African countries derives its maternal mortality rate from death registries. Sounds like a very small thing, uh, but if you keep registries of birth but not of death, um, the only way to work out your maternal mortality is uh, by doing estimates based on your GDP and women's education levels. Those are poor proxies. Um, particularly in uh, countries with very varied access to healthcare, such as Nigeria, where the um, uh, condition of women's health in the north of the country is dramatically different from the south. Um, finally, agricultural production, a um, problem I'm familiar with from my time in Ethiopia. Um, we repeatedly encountered the situation that, according to one set of government statistics, Ethiopia's agricultural production was growing by leaps and bounds. And yet, um, there were recurrent shortages of food, and the price of food remained high. Uh, so how do you reconcile apparently growing production with shortages of food? It can't be exports, because there are really only one or two ports through which the food could be exported, and it wasn't going through them. Um, so either people are eating more food, and we, we don't know, uh, or more likely, the growth in production is ephemeral. It's, a, it's an artifact of, of the statistics. Um, so all of these examples demonstrate, I think, why we need better data and development. Um, and now I want to tell you a little bit about what the international community is trying to do to fix it. Well, the first is the traditional top-down statistical survey method. Um, there has been a surge in the number of surveys, um, that's the red and the blue lines, uh, conducted in developing countries over the past few decades. Uh, the World Bank and the UN agencies sponsor a large number of household surveys. Increasingly, they sponsor uh, a census as well. Um, and as the number of mobile phone subscriptions has gone from zero to near universal, it's become cheaper and easier to administer surveys. You don't have to send enumerators to knock on doors anymore. You can call people, although that introduces a bias, of course, in favor of younger people living in urban areas. Um, so we have more surveys taking place. A lot of them are still funded by the donors, though, so they introduce their own priorities, not always the same as the country's priorities. Second, people generate their own data. Um, there's been an anti-corruption conference in London this week. Um, much of the talk has been about uh, rich countries pointing the finger at poor countries and saying, you're corrupt. Um, 
there hasn't been much talk of uh, the steps that people are taking to fix corruption in their own backyard. This is an initiative from India in which people are encouraged to report anonymously when they paid a bribe to a public official. Um, it starts as a small thing, but uh, uh, when I last looked at this a few months ago, um, over 60,000 Indians had filed a report. Um, 900, they'd also found, in addition to uh, uh, the uh, number of corrupt officials, 945 honest officials had also been reported, which was encouraging. <laughs> um, and as you can see from the map, the largest number um, actually came from, um, of reports came from some of the southern states in India where the, where the tech industry is headquartered. So there is an association between mobile phone spread use literacy and the ability of people to stand up for themselves and say no to paying bribes. Um, and there's a few examples from Nepal as well in which people got together after the earthquake and shared information using their mobile phones with NGOs um, and with humanitarian aid organizations because the government wasn't doing it. And that's also a new thing. You didn't have that in Haiti after the earthquake. You didn't really have that during Ebola. In Nepal, for various reasons, that started happening, which is great. We're in the Open Data Institute, so uh, there's an obligatory reference to big data. Big data is not necessarily open, of course, and big data carries all sorts of risks with it, such as in this um, celebrated, some would say notorious example um, from Cote d'Ivoire, of using um, mobile phone ID, uh, call records to trace the spread of malaria. So the theory behind this is sound, which is that uh, the malaria parasite travels with people in their bloodstream. And so when people's travel follows their social paths, um, i.e. follows the paths of calls they make, then you can also trace where the, uh, where, where the malarial parasite is going. Um, as you can tell, there's a number of assumptions in that. Do people necessarily travel to the places they make phone calls? No, sometimes they make phone calls precisely because they can't travel. Um, a bigger problem, perhaps, is that uh, a lot of data privacy is compromised through these big data applications. Most of us don't read the small print when we take out a cell phone contract or buy a scratch card. Um, we might be surprised if we learned that the company we bought the scratch card from was then sharing data with authorities uh, about where we were and what the uh, uh, and, and, and where we were making calls to. Um, so this is quite a controversial application um, and there was a report out last month uh, on this being used to track Ebola in Sierra Leone. The report actually says um, uh, cell phone call data records a big data disaster. Uh, go take a look at that if you if you believe big data is the answer to everything. Uh, but the ODIs, I'm sure we, we don't believe that. <laughs> Meanwhile, what are governments doing? So this is the traditional way of, um, of gathering information on what people are, people are doing. Um, the government uh, conducts a census, conducts surveys, collects statistics. Um, development initiatives looked at the countries of sub-Saharan Africa and tried to work out when they last did all of these things. Uh, it turns out that four out of five countries have done a census in the last 10 years. It helps that you need a census if you want to collect taxes um, or introduce conscription. Um, and it also helps that you get generous grants from the World Bank to conduct them. At the other extreme, um, almost no one collects death statistics. Birth statistics, 
four, two out of five countries have some form of birth registry. Only one in five have an up-to-date registry of, of deaths, um, so, which means we can't really work out what population is between census dates. Also means we can't work out what uh, maternal infant mortality is. Um, and other things, agricultural household surveys, demographic and health surveys, wide variability. Um, some of these are collected every three, or four, three to five years. Uh, there are some countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo where they've never been collected across the whole country. Um, how much would it cost to fix all of this? Uh, well, a number of people have tried to estimate that, connected with the global goals, the sustainable development goals. Say, so, well, we've got 17 goals. How much would it cost to measure whether we're all achieving those goals? Um, and the estimates vary, but the, um, the best ones I've seen suggest that the cost of running a global data collection statistical system is about a billion dollars a year, which is less than 20 cents per man, woman, and child on the planet, so it's pretty cheap. Uh, and actually, half of that is money that's already being spent. With 500 million here, governments are already spending that money. Um, and there is, in addition, some aid money already going into this sector. So you probably just need a few hundred million dollars more, and we can close the data gaps. Um, having said that, that involves working in countries uh, like Sudan, like DRC, like Afghanistan, which are difficult and expensive to work in. Um, not everyone is as easy to access um, or as... Uh, as, um, as readily IT uh, as, the, um, as, as the countries that we, um, that we saw earlier, Nigeria or Sierra Leone, which are relatively easy to get around. Um, but still, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of money if it's appropriately directed. And indeed, a number of donors have stepped up and said they will provide that money, including the UK. Um, and that's that third part of providing the money, the aid money, and where that goes that I want to move on to now. Um, and this is a little plug for the work that my organization does, Publish We Fund. We campaign for aid transparency. We believe that aid is great, but it could be so much better. Uh, and part of making it better involves showing people what it is, where it's going, what the results are, learn from the mistakes, um, and encourage people who are the recipients, the beneficiaries of aid, to have a greater say in how it's spent. Uh, so our process is to assess the data of 46 agencies um, in 22 countries and a whole bunch of multilateral organizations too. We work with 36 independent reviewers over a period of 14 weeks. Um, I just say this to impress the donors with how thorough we are. Um, and here's how your score is derived. 10 points for commitment, having a freedom of information law or open data law. 25 points for organizational level transparency, uh, things like publishing a budget, contact details so people can get in touch with you. Um, and nearly two thirds of the points, 65 out of 100 points we award for details of your activities uh, because most aid projects are projects. It's a sum of money that goes from one organization to another to deliver a specific good or service, uh, and we're trying to assess the quality of information on that good or service. 
Um, so what we've found over the past few years, aid has been getting more transparent. Uh, contrasting our 2013 index, um, in which only 6% of the donors met um, the highest standard, what we call a very good category, um, by the time of our 2016 index, published last month, that went up to 22% of donors. And um, in terms of the numbers, uh, that means that 10 big donors, including the Department for International Development, the World Bank, the United Nations Development Programme, and the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria all meet this highest quality standard. And between them, they account for a quarter of global aid. So that's not bad. Aid has gone from one of the least transparent sectors that governments fund to one of the most transparent over the past five or six years. Um, we'll take a little bit of credit for that, but most of the credit actually belongs to the donors who saw the light and invested in systems to produce this data. Here's the, here's the full list. Um, sorry, I forgot to mention Sweden um, and some of the regional development banks as well. Um, the European Union is unfortunately in the second category. That's the good category. Uh, although I will say um, that the European Commission has been very strong in encouraging its member states to publish data. So whilst their own data is not of the highest standard, um, they've been playing a leadership role to get this standard accepted uh, by the other countries. Um, the result of all of this is that we're seeing a gradual shift from annual reporting to real-time data sharing. Um, and I identified three data sets in that. One is the um, statistical database maintained by the OECD, which is traditionally the regulator of the aid industry. And that's a good database. It, it goes back decades. Um, these are the people who mark your report every year and tell you if you've been spending enough money and on the right things. Um, but it only comes out once a year. Um, and it's historic. It's no good for planning. Um, so we are working a lot with the International Aid Transparency Initiative. And the point of that is to provide forward-looking information. Because if you're a finance or a planning minister, like my colleagues in Sierra Leone, trying to figure out how to pay their civil servants, it's really important to know how much aid you've got coming in and whether it's restricted and you have to spend it on certain things, or whether it's budget support and you can spend it in the way that you determine is most appropriate. Um, and IATI is a machine-readable format. It's an open data standard, and it's increasingly widely adopted. It doesn't work for everyone. For humanitarian emergencies, for example, you sometimes have to share data every day. Uh, IATI is not very good at that yet. So people are using other formats like the Humanitarian Data Exchange, uh, which is where the relief workers in places like Nepal log on every day to upload their spreadsheets of who they've seen for what. Um, and there are increasing moves afoot to try and make that data machine readable and interoperable as well. Uh, so you don't end up with the situation that was common in Haiti after the earthquake, where a whole bunch of NGOs went to the same district and tried to do the same thing without informing each other of what they were up to. The result of all of this is growing quantities of open data in the IATI standard from a growing number of publishers. Um, these are over 400 by now. Um, chart slightly out of date. I think it's close to 450 now. And 
all agencies, all shapes or sizes are publishing. Um, DFID was the first in 2011. The World Bank followed shortly after. Recently, we've had a whole group of NGOs, especially British, Dutch, and Belgian NGOs, start publishing data. And the result of all of that, if we get it right, is that you can follow the money. So you can look at a pot of cash that has gone from DFID to the UN High Commission for Refugees, assigned for aid in Syria. The UN High Commission for Refugees then commissions the Red Cross or Médecins Sans Frontières to deliver a certain service. You can follow that. And then you can see which Syrian organizations they've commissioned to deliver services inside Syria. You can't always follow the money because sometimes you have to protect the identity of the beneficiaries and of the organizations, especially working in war zones. But at least in principle, uh, it's possible. And where there isn't a war zone, where there are no risks to people's, people's life, uh, we very much encourage that sort of transparency. Um, there's still a problem with forward-looking data. We're expecting about $120 billion of aid um, that's technically overseas development assistance as defined by the OECD in the year 2016. As of November last year, only 20% of that, 24 billion, had actually been published in open data budget form. So imagine you're writing the budget of Sierra Leone, but you've only got 20% of the aid that you can expect on your own budget. Um, so what are you going to do about the other 80%? And if you look two years out, only 10 billion of an expected 120 billion uh, was on the, on the registry. So there's clearly work to be done there. Um, but this is up from zero five years ago. So uh, we are making progress. Who's using the data? Um, so primarily, this data is supposed to be used by developing countries for decision making, counting, and reporting. Um, and there are a number of countries coded in dark blue here that have built some sort of import system. Um, now, just because they've got an import system doesn't mean they're using it. Um, you can import data into your own budget software and then ignore the software and carry on writing a budget on paper, as you always have. But technically, it's possible. And now the challenge is to raise awareness and get people to actually use the data. Um, we also have a large number of countries coded in green who are committed to doing this in principle but haven't got round to it yet. And this is the problem of low capacity. There are many, many competing priorities. What's more important to you? Do you do a census? Do you do an agricultural survey? Or uh, do you do open aid data? Ultimately, you want to do all three, but you have to pick one. Um, generally, people pick the census if there's only one they can do, because that's where the money is. So we'd like to see a lot more countries using this data, and NGOs too. Some of them have started, um, but there's a long way to go. How about um, news stories? What are people doing back home with the data? Uh, so here's a few news stories I found in the past few months. Um, they tend to be of the aid bashing variety. So there's quite a lot of this in the Daily Mail at the moment. There's uh, regular campaigns to say, well, why are we giving money to flood victims in Pakistan when we have flood victims in the UK? And you point out that when floods hit Pakistan in 2012, it affected 30 million people. When they hit Somerset uh, a year or two ago, they affected about 30,000. Um, but that argument doesn't always go down too well. Um, and so you do get people 
in the AI industry get a bit frustrated with transparency because this is the sort of headline that, that results. Um, but my view is we have to deal with that. This is a large amount of money. We have to be open about where it goes and we have to justify it to, uh, to taxpayers and not try to hide it and pretend everything's okay. Um, so here are two headlines I thought were more encouraging. Um, one was an investigation by Simon Cox at the BBC into where aid to Syria is actually going. Is it going inside Syria? Is it going to the refugee camps in Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey? Or is it actually going to pay benefits for Syrian refugees in Europe? And at least the UK's aid money, it turns out less than half of that one billion actually ends up in Syria. And a lot of it gets eaten up in overhead by the various organizations, some of which are justified, right? It's difficult and expensive to run programs in Syria out of a base in Turkey. And some of it, frankly, is waste and duplication. And, and this is the most interesting for a US taxpayer. Um, the largest recipient of foreign aid for the US is actually Israel at $3 billion a year. Um, and that's military aid, which is the least transparent form of aid. But uh, according to the US government, it's still aid. So we should know about it. Um, that's all. Uh, I hope that was interesting. Let's, let's have some questions. Thank you so much. Uh, we still have time for a couple, few questions. So yeah, if you want to ask questions. I want to ask you, are these data open or, as you mentioned, there is any there is a trend to centralize the data in order everybody can exploit the data? Thank you. So the question is, how much this data is open? Um, the answer varies. International data sets, um, so data that collected and published by the World Bank, the OECD, the United Nations, almost all of that is now open. Um, five or six years ago, it wasn't. Now it is. It's a huge victory for the open data movement, and a lot of that information is really useful. On the other hand, data collected and published at the national level usually isn't open. Um, so UK, US, um, most European countries, you can get access to something like the census now. You can't do that for Nigeria. In fact, Nigeria hasn't conducted a census uh, for a very long time. Um, so it's very difficult to even estimate how many people there are in Nigeria. Um, and in general, when I look at government's open data pages, they put one big data dump out there once, and then they don't update it. So Kenya did a great open data initiative in 2010 or 11, released a load of really interesting information about agricultural productivity and regional and household incomes disaggregated by regional level and disaggregated by gender. And I thought it was amazing. But five years later, it hasn't been updated. The same data set is still sitting there. So theoretically, it might be open data, but in practice, it's not very useful. And I think we need to do better as advocates in saying, look, it's not just about making your data open in the sense of technically ticking the box of having an open license for reuse and not charging for it. It's also updating it regularly, putting it somewhere that people can find, putting it in the national language. It's amazing how much data on Francophone African countries is not published in French, let alone the relevant national languages. Thank you. 
was interested to hear um, about the lack of data on deaths uh, in, in a lot of countries. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, do doctors not attend deaths or record the way people die so outcomes can't be uh, forecast from that and so on? Um, so I don't have a systematic answer to why that is. I can speak to my experience in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Um, where the answer is, one, death is a family matter, not a matter for the state. Um, and we saw this particularly during the Ebola crisis. People were very reluctant to report deaths in the family because it is the responsibility of the family to make sure that um, a person is buried appropriately and family members are notified and so on. But they don't view it as the responsibility of, of the government to collect, to collect data on this. And when the majority of deaths take place at home and not in a hospital, it's very difficult to enforce that. Births, on the other hand, are a very different matter for two reasons. One is there has been an enormous spread in the past 10 to 15 years of maternal health facilities. Many more children are being born with professional attendants in clinics and in hospitals than ever before. And you are almost always recorded when you're born in a, in a clinic. The second reason is that most countries now require you to have an ID card if you want to access public services, go to school and so on. And the easiest way of getting an ID card is to register a birth, and you get one automatically. Um, so there are a number of reasons why, why, why death is so poorly recorded, but un undoubtedly it varies uh, across the continent, and there, there are some countries who, who do it quite, quite well. Uh, South Africa, I understand, for instance, where there is a nationwide pension, uh, pension scheme um, is quite good at recording deaths because it has to be, because if you don't, people die and their relatives will continue collecting the pension and you lose a lot of money. Um, I'm really interested in initiatives like humanitarian data exchange, um, but I wanted to hear from you as someone with experience. Like, What are the, the major barriers that aid organisations and NGOs have in sharing and publishing more open data? And what can organizations like the ODI be doing to help them? Good question. So what can humanitarian, what, what stops humanitarians from sharing data and what can we do to help? Uh, so I'd say there's, there's technical problems and there's cultural problems. Um, technical problems are you've just flown in, you're working off a laptop, and um, there's an emergency. And, and almost by definition, you're probably somewhere that has got poor infrastructure it's quite difficult to physically share data. You don't have regular internet access. Everything's in a spreadsheet on your laptop. The traditional way of, of doing it, and actually even the military do this, is um, save data to memory sticks, put it in a Land Rover, and drive it around giving it to people. Um, that's gradually getting better. You know, there's very few countries now that don't have broadband internet, at least in the, in the capital. Um, but then there's a whole bunch of cultural barriers. One is that humanitarians, um, quite rightly in many cases, don't like to talk to the government because the government is in a civil war. The government is an agent of violence, um, whether you agree with them or not. And humanitarians have to be neutral. And the principles of humanitarian engagement in some cases prohibit sharing data with the government because it may encourage them to... Go, go and, you know, most extreme case, bomb a population that's somewhere that you didn't, you didn't know about. 
Um, so there's legitimate cultural reasons to be reluctant to share data. There's less legitimate ones too. Um, a lot of people in the development sector and also you peacekeepers criticize the humanitarians for being standoffish and not wanting to engage with them. And that was certainly my experience in the Ebola crisis. People like Médecins Sans Frontières came in from somewhere like Sudan, where they're used to working with the government as an agent of, of, of war, um, of, of violence. And you know, government in Sierra Leone has many problems, but it was not trying to kill people. It was trying to get health services out to them. And um, they were quite slow to shift their mindset and their way of working to that context. What can we do here? I think one is we need to understand better. Um, the conditions humanitarians work in are very difficult, very different from what most of us experience in our daily lives. Um, Second, we need to work better or work more on data sharing protocols. Um, that's both the technical aspect of making standards interoperable um, and also the political aspect of having rules for how and when you, you share data. Um, and finally, I think we have, to, we have to learn a little respect. We shouldn't expect to go into Sierra Leone and Liberia and walk to the and go to the national telecoms regulator and just get a database of all the SIM cards, who they're registered to, and um, what calls those people have been making. You know, that's against the data protection law of Sierra Leone. If you tried to do that here, not only is that against the data protection law, it would also be a criminal offence. Um, so we need to be a lot more respectful of people's laws, cultures, and traditions. And if we can do that, I think. Um, over time, this will get better. Uh, thank you. We don't have one question, uh, time for questions, but thank you Rupert, for this excellent lecture. It was really fascinating. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.